it's rife, the, the leaner you are, the fitter you are, you know, how many Ks can you do on how little can you eat, you know, last two hours of your ride, are you hungry, do you really need that bar, that, that sort of thing. And I think it's, it's definitely there, body image and, and you know, uh, issues with that feed hand in hand with how we're feeling about ourselves and our mental health. The more that we can talk about it as a Peloton, the more we can change that. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Alan McCubbin. I'm an accredited sports dietitian, lecturer and researcher in sports nutrition at Monash University in Melbourne. And I'm joined as always by my colleague who does all those things as well, Steph Gaskell. What's been happening this week, Steph? What's been happening, Alan? Um, Similar stuff, just um, although a bit different. Now we can walk outside without masks on. That's, That's a bit of fun. Um, same same but different same same but different yeah just enjoying the the beautiful sun um and yeah finishing off studies uh so I recruited my my final one the other day um fingers crossed um that all works okay um and yeah otherwise just ticking along with that doing some marking for uni because exams are now and um and that's about it, really. Uh, what about you? Uh, yeah, been a um, bit of a COVID scare, not not directly, but uh, kind of dodged a bullet a bit there with kids in, in one of my kids' classes getting COVID and then no. others being primary contacts. Mm-hmm. So we uh, chose to not send them back to school next week when they're all meant to return to full classes and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, which is just as well. I think they're down to about four kids left in the class um, out of a class of 20-odd. So, yeah, it's um, it's been interesting. But it's been some great weather down here um, in Melbourne and been able to sort of do some schoolwork with the kids during the, the mornings and then, you know, get out and about and go to the beach and things in the afternoons, which has been nice. Yeah, that's really nice. Yep, yep. Mm. Awesome. Here on The Long Munch, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask about, sort of things that people are often discussing on their ride or their run, in the cafe afterwards, uh, with coaches or on various online forums. Um, And so we take a particular topic or question and and break it down, invite a guest expert in our A episode uh, and then an athlete in the B episode to add their perspective to the topic. Um, and now today's episode is episode 24B. Our topic is a uh, repeat or you know, continuation of last week's topic, can I underfuel my training? And so who's our guest this week to talk about that, Steph? We have the lovely Kate Perry, um, who um, it's kind of in your area of expertise here, Alan, cycling. I, it's, it's good having the cyclists on. I'm learning like a bit of the cycling terminology and um getting with the lingo yeah getting up the lingo and yeah learning about the racing and the like training thresholds and all of that jazz um Mm. yeah but um yeah we've got kate perry on and um i've really enjoyed listening to this one and i think there's a lot of pearls um coming out of this one so uh yeah but i'll let you tell the listeners um a bit more about kate soon um yeah yeah yeah, absolutely. Uh, and just a reminder for those who've been listening over the last couple of weeks, you'll know that uh, today is technically our 48th episode mm-hmm. of the podcast and we've got our 50th coming up very soon. Uh, it also happens to fall in the same week as the one-year anniversary of the podcast. Um, 
just by complete coincidence. So, mm. yeah, really looking forward to that. And, and as we said last week, we've got a really special guest coming up for our 50th episode uh, with, I think, a really interesting topic that people are going to really enjoy. Uh, whether you're a runner, cyclist or triathlete, I think um, you'll, you'll really enjoy it and get a lot out of it uh, and hopefully um, as well as being entertaining and, and learning a bit about an insight into, you know, some of the world's best, yeah. um, you'll also hopefully get a few things you can take away f- for use in your own training and racing as well. Yeah. And, yeah, social media shout-outs. Um, we've, I guess we've had a few, like, kind of um, leading up to this topic of even you know does Lena equal faster um and then talking about um can I underfuel my my training um so yeah thank you to um Alice McNamara sports physician um and was an elite rower that um uh, I guess reshared our our insta story um and found that that was you know really useful and it's good just to be able to talk about this topic more um uh and yeah i know um i continue to to have feedback from runners and participants that that enjoy listening to the topics we're covering as well yeah yeah absolutely so uh alice was actually our guest on episode 18b i think it was around the topic of hyponatremia because she as you said she's a sports doctor and she has provided um, medical services to um, particularly ultra running events uh, up in the high country often um, and where, where people might be at risk of, of developing hyponatremia. So uh, if you're interested in, in hyponatremia or hearing from Alice, you can do so in, in that episode. Mm. And she's also done some research in this topic that we're talking about, relative energy deficiency. Um, That's right. Sport. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, for sure. Um, okay, well, if anyone else wants to ask a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Um, Or if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, feel free to uh, leave a a rating or a review on there. We'd really appreciate that. Um, We've had some great ones recently. Um, But, yeah, of course, you can listen on any of the other sort of main podcasting platforms uh, wherever wherever you choose to get your podcast from. Let's get stuck into into this one. Um, so I'll let you introduce, um, yeah, Kate um, to the listeners. Yep. So Kate Perry is someone that if you followed the domestic cycling scene here in Australia, the National Road Series, uh, you'll probably be very familiar with that name. Uh, if you watch the National, um, National Championships, the National Road Race, um, you might have seen Kate uh, at the pointy end of that but yeah Kate's raced for for several years um, most recently with Specialized Women's Racing until the end of 2020. Um, She's also a a cycling coach as well Um, and then this year she's actually taken a step back from NRS Racing to become the high performance manager with Knight's LMLY Racing and we'll have a bit of a chat to her about that experience and that the transition from from that sort of athlete to the manager role there in in the National Road Series. Um, Kate's also a lecturer in exercise and sports science at La Trobe University. So while we're speaking to her as an athlete, she obviously has a good background, both as a a sports scientist uh, and a a coach as well, um, in terms of the the scientific basis of sort of fueling and and underfueling. So uh, given her experience, both as an athlete, but also as a a professional in this area, it's it's really great to to hear her story and um, her, her thoughts on this issue. 
Yeah. Awesome. Let's uh, get stuck into it. Yep, let's do it. Kate Perry, welcome to The Long Munch. How are things going with you? Good morning, uh, Alan. Thank you. And hello, Steph. Uh, yeah, things are going really well. It's um, obviously here in Melbourne and we've just come out of lockdown recently. So I'm hoping to transition away from the, the working at home life and uh, get out to the outdoors now that the sun's coming out. So yeah, very much a good time at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, a lot of people might know you uh, if they've followed um, cycling here in Australia and particularly the National Road Series, uh, which is kind of that high-level domestic series in Australia, and you've been involved with that for, ooh, I guess about seven or eight years? Yeah, right? I was trying to do the maths the other day, actually, and I think, yeah, we're sort of clocking almost nine years at the moment from when I first yeah, got wow. back into it. So, yeah, I guess an yep. old hand. <laughs> yes, stalwart. That's there it. You go. <laughs> yep. For sure. Um, but but after 2020, I guess, which was a really interrupted season from an NRS perspective, I think they only got a couple of what, races done for that series from memory. But you, you sort of took a step back from, from racing this year and took up a role as a high performance manager for Knight's LMLY racing team. How have you kind of found that transition from, from riding to sort of the management side of things? Yeah, it's a, a very good question, Alan. And I think, you know, for one, for me, uh, sort of resonating on, as you said, 2020 was a very interrupted year um, with, I think, you know, sport obviously across Australia, not just cycling, but, you know, I think it probably forced a few athletes to think about where they were at and what they sort of wanted to do next. And uh, yeah, for me, I'd, I'd been racing, at, as you said, the National um, Road Series scene for quite a number of years. I'd been with Specialised Women's Racing for five years. I felt like I was probably due for a change pretty soon. And um, yeah, I think that sort of coincided with not really knowing what the future of the sport was going to look like for the next few years. And I was ready for a bit of a new challenge. So I decided to, to call it quits at the end of 2020 in terms of racing. Definitely not calling it quits in terms of bike riding I think you know that's something I'll, I'll always do um, but yeah for racing I thought okay I've sort of ticked that box and I you know wanted to see what else was out there and what else I could sort of contribute to the sport and naturally when you leave a team the sort of I guess rumor mill and you know Chinese whispers happens and various people get wind that you may be potentially up for grabs and so I uh, I had a phone call with uh, one of the sponsors uh, at the time Dan called me and originally you know, said, do you want to ride for this new and exciting team I'm a part of? And, uh, you know, I said, first up, sorry, Dan, but I'm not interested in racing. And then that very much, um, I guess, progressed into a discussion of how could I still be involved with the team? Because it was, you know, something I was really excited about. I'd heard about the Knights of Suburbia group and, um, you know, obviously then that they were starting a women's team. And I thought this is a great opportunity to essentially fill the void I think you know as an athlete you finish something up and you're not necessarily ready to depart from the sport and this was a way that I could still stay connected and give something back and not have the pressure of racing but still be involved quite heavily so yeah I had a chat to, to Damien um, who's the team manager and we discussed what that might look like and naturally being involved in sports science and um, sports coaching already it seemed like a, a good fit and to be honest, something that wasn't necessarily being done at a lot of in a lot of teams at the national mm. series, you know, probably more so to do with budget previously, or you know, I guess um, 
hands on deck, you know, just having that the resources available. And, you know, fortunately, we were in a position where we could have a few different roles within the team management umbrella. And one of them was going to be looking at the performance side of things and, you know, act as a mentor to the to the team. So, yeah, that was that was my 2021. And then unfortunately, we all got locked down again. And we only had a few races to really test that out. But um, yeah, I think for me, it honestly saved me within the sport, having that progression and that next step and the opportunity. Yep, yep, cool. And we were talking off air just before that uh, sort of transitioned out of that riding, but the uh, the powers of B kept bugging you and uh, possibly transitioning back into riding again. That's it. I feel like I've a bit of a John Farnham farewell tour in that I, you know, everybody <laughs> thought that I was retiring and I thought, oh, I'm only 30. I don't know about the word retirement. That kind of scares me. So, you know, I, um, yeah, I managed to still keep up some riding, uh, you know, obviously um, keep saying last year, but obviously we're still in 2021, um, you know, and I think, yeah, I think we'll probably touch on this a bit later, but, you know, I had quite a, quite a, um, a life-changing event earlier in the year. And I thought, oh, I think I might not quite be done with bike racing yet. So, yeah, naturally, I think Damien was very happy when I he he'll probably tell you that uh, he forced or planted the seed of that decision. But I think equally, we both decided that I'd like to give racing one more crack. And, you know, we had the opportunity to introduce a, a sort of a road captaincy role, I guess you would call it, um, you know, being a very, relatively new team. We didn't really have that um, position on the road with our current roster so yeah it gave me an opportunity to pin a number on again and I think you'll probably hear it here first I don't know if we've actually announced it officially but I did get clearance prior to coming on today to make sure <laughs> I was allowed to drop that without getting into trouble but um, yeah I'm excited I think it's a new challenge for me but equally I can get back into racing because you know I think with any athlete you're always going to be competitive aren't you so yeah yes strapping back in <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I kind of stumbled over the LMLY part of the team name before, but that stands for Love Me, Love You, which is an, an organisation that teams associated with. Do you want to tell us a little bit about who that is and, and what they do? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so the Love Me, Love You Foundation, they uh, run awareness and education and peer support programs to schools, to clubs, to workplaces, um, really being advocates for, for mental health and more about the discussion around mental health and the journey that we all go on and at some point you know we're probably going to have our own struggles but it's more about identifying that we we might need support and then that bridging link of how to actually get that support so you know they run advocacy com campaigns and events to spread the messages you know they're obviously sponsoring uh, our team which is a huge a huge thing um, you know it really helps bring that conversation into the cycling community and Equally for a lot of the, the founders of the Love Me, Love You Foundation, they've, you know, really, I guess, harnessed sport to help them through their own personal uh, mental health journey. So I think, you know, that's a great example of how important the bike is and how important sport is and equally how okay it is to, you know, have the conversation about how we're all going and how we're feeling. And I think obviously in the last, you know, almost 18 months, I guess you would say that's becoming more paramount that it's important to be in a safe environment where we can talk about how we're feeling and really, you know, I guess have those conversations. So yeah, the Love Me, Love You Foundation are, are doing a great, great thing, obviously with our team. Um, but 
you know, equally within the sport, they've really jumped on board with with Oz Cycling and have done a few uh, educational um, seminars with some of the juniors on some virtual camps that we had this year. And yeah, really just sort of promoting that conversation and that, you know, the, the journey that we're not alone and we're all together. So that's sort of, you know, their catch cry of never being alone, which I think is so important, particularly in a sport such as cycling where, you know, sometimes you can feel probably quite isolated or, you know, you're an individual athlete in an endurance sport, but everybody's there together at the end of the day. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah awesome. Nice. Um, now, you mentioned before sort of that life-altering moment earlier in the year do you want to tell us a little bit about what happened and where things are at now yeah definitely look uh i I was thinking about how do i phrase this without scaring everybody but in essence (laughs) i was uh i had my first serious bike accident which you know after riding bikes for 15 years i think touch wood that's pretty good but equally Mm. it was quite a serious accident and then i was hit by a car um, coming home from work one day and pretty much just got cleaned up in an intersection and what we thought was a broken elbow soon uh, became apparent that I'd broken my neck and my back. So I'd fractured my C6 and 7 uh, in my in my neck for those that sort of know where that is, sort of the base of my neck and uh, equally some of the vertebrae um, at the top of my spine and then I think it was five ribs as well. So As you can imagine, it was a very, uh, very big fall, uh, a big collision. And I sort of, you know, essentially landed head first and that compression nature of the accident meant that it was a little bit more serious than we thought. So I think, you know, I don't know whether it's a good or a bad thing, but I didn't actually get a concussion. So I do remember the whole thing. Um, So it was a lot to internalise and process. And, you know, obviously notwithstanding the injury and being in a neck brace for six weeks, I sort of had to go through the motions of, being forced to stop riding and what does that look like, you know, and then sort of navigate the next sort of three to six months. And yeah, that was April and here we are in sort of, what are we now, November. Um, I'm definitely back on the bike, back riding, but as I was saying just before earlier, it's taking me a little bit longer than I think I expected to find that form again. But yeah, look, I thank my lucky stars that I'm here to tell the story, to be honest. And I think I gave quite a few people a scare, including myself. And yeah, it really makes you realise how, how vulnerable you are, whether you're a confident rider or a beginner, you know, any road user, life is very, very fragile and we can't really take anything for granted, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, and so thinking about your ambitions in the sport moving forward, obviously, you know, you talked about, you know, going in, back in and doing a bit more racing. Um, you're also a, a cycling coach. Uh, you're also a lecturer in exercise and sports science at La Trobe Uni. How do you think sort of down the track you're going to kind of combine all of those things? Yeah, it's it's funny actually and I've, I think I've been thinking about this quite a lot probably this year uh, more so recently than, than before and I think for me I'm, I always sort of have the, you know, do what you love sort of mentality so I don't really know what the next three to five years or, you know, however long down the track will look like but I think equally my my passion for the sport and what I've learned through being an athlete is definitely resonated into my approach with you know with my teaching and coaching and I think the two go hand in hand teaching and coaching are a very similar profession and you know Mm. I don't really think of coaching as a job I think of it as something that I you know I love to do and I love helping other athletes out and drawing upon my own experiences um but yeah I think you know 
finding my feet as a as a lecturer recently in sports science is something that I, I do hope to continue. I, I love teaching and I think I just have that sort of personality and picked that up from my father actually who was also a lecturer for many years. And yeah, I think I am fortunate that both being a as I said an athlete and in that area of um, academia it, the two go hand in hand and are mutually beneficial in both ways. So, yeah, my cycling's improved because I've got the professional knowledge, but then equally my teaching is really, um, I guess, impactful to the students because I've got all of this experience to draw upon as an athlete, so really bridging that gap between theory and practice. Yeah, awesome. And that was my other question, actually. Like, you know, you've been coaching for quite a few years now, but when you first started out coaching and, and working with athletes, did you find you were learning things from your interactions with other athletes that you could then bring back and apply to your own training and racing? Yeah, I think so. And I think that's a really, uh, I guess, underrated thing, you know, drawing upon others and having conversations about there's more than one way, you know, to do things. And I think for me, I, I probably learned the most about how I train when I took a, a step away from training. I actually had a break from the sport for a couple of years whilst I did my uh, undergraduate degree. And I think that's what really gave me the excitement and um, appreciation for the sport and why I definitely got back on the bike. Um, yeah, but equally, I think I, I've learned a lot about people and how athletes, how to manage athletes, I guess you would say. Um, through coaching and just how everybody's different, everybody, you know, reacts differently to potentially stimulus or stresses and pressures and have equally, you know, um, I guess, place different pressures on themselves. So, yeah, I think it's almost like this beautiful, perfect storm of I can draw upon each experience to complement the other one. But, yeah, I've definitely learned how to train smarter and that if you get the basics right, then that's, you know, the very big first step. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So our um, topic today is can I underfuel my training? Uh, and we're talking to you about this because I guess you've been on kind of quite the journey throughout your cycling career um, with this and um, and what we refer to as, as REDS, so relative energy deficiency in sport. Um, so, so looking back, were you aware in the beginning that this was a potential issue that would occur in cyclists? Uh, it's a very good question, Steph, and I was thinking about this uh, obviously when we first discussed about coming on today and I think I think you're always going to be aware of it. I think it's more about whether you as an athlete acknowledge that it can happen. Um, I, I think, I don't know if I articulated that well enough, but I think, you know, knowing what I knew about underfueling and, you know, the ramifications of that in terms of weight loss and then obviously, you know, um, cessation of your, your menstrual cycle and, you know, all of the um, issues and health issues relating to that. Like I, I knew that it was a thing, um, but I equally think it's a matter of accepting accepting that it can happen to you and when you do see those sort of early signs of, you know, dropping weight, power to weight ratio changes, you know, you start to go up hills a lot easier, et cetera. I think it's a fine line between recognising when that becomes detrimental to performance and I think as athletes we're probably very good at hiding that or not listening to that little voice in the back of our head when it does become apparent. So, yeah, I definitely knew it was a thing but it probably took me too long to realise it was happening to me at the time. And so continuing on that, um, when did you, I guess, yeah, when did you sort of start realising that it was happening to you? Um, and then 
when you did realise, how long then did it take you to sort of start, um, uh, uh, I guess, trying to tackle that? Yeah, I think for me, it probably, it happened over time. It was quite gradual. Um, I was sort of reflecting on, for me, I had had an instance occur previously prior to, to cycling when I was doing a lot of running and gym work and intentionally had decided that I'd wanted to lose weight. So, you know, had a very luxurious first couple of years at uni and put on a few kilos and then thought, all right, let's let's uh, let's try and get back into the fitness regime. And, you know, as 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 you potentially can do and a lot of people run the risk of, I it became an obsession and sure enough, I dropped, mm. dropped the weight, got to my goal weight, thought, why don't we go a little bit further, which, mm. you know, is that dangerous slippery slope. And like I said, I, I, I knew it was happening, but I think at the time I wasn't willing to accept it or I was prepared to risk, risk my overall health um, in exchange for the aesthetic purposes Um Mm-hmm. Which unfortunately, you know, it, 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 that meant the the biggest thing for me then was my iron dropped, um, and then obviously my my period stopped. Um, I had people that I never really thought would comment on my weight, like for example, lecturers and family members were actually a little bit concerned that you know you're getting a bit thin, sort of, you know. So I think that triggered me to okay, I, I probably need to address this. Um, but it definitely, it's funny, I. I you're always probably reluctant to say that you had a disorder of some some description, but I, I knew mm. what my, my thought processes were unhealthy. Um, but I think naturally a few things in my life sort of, you know, at that time it was quite, I'm not unstable, but I had a lot of life decisions to make. Like, what am I going to do with my career? Do I want to get back into sport, et cetera, et cetera. And I think over time, once I decided to get back into cycling, I was forced to eat eat more because, you know, you, you know that you have to um, to get through the training. And then naturally my weight sort of crept up and balanced out to a point where it was, um, you know, manageable and I got my period back, et cetera. And then I probably got to a point, unfortunately, again, where I started comparing myself to other riders. And, you know, I was, I don't know, I think I might have been like 23, 24 at the time. So, you know, I definitely wasn't the youngest in the bunch, but I wasn't the oldest by any means. And I think I'd started to think maybe I should lose a few kilos again to be a bit lighter. So, you know, rather than running 10th up in a hill climb finish, I can run in the sort of top three. So, you know, I think I I knew that if I dropped weight, then that would that would result in an increase in performance. I knew it probably wasn't going to be long term, but it could give me that sort of short boost of a, you know, a win. And yeah, then as as luck should have it, I actually had a few really good race results. And I thought, and you know, a lot of people started commenting, "Oh, you're uh, you're looking pretty fit. Like, you know, what are you doing? Blah blah blah." And it wasn't an an intentional like, okay, I'm going to starve myself, but it was more cut out snacks, etc. Or you know, rather than eating 60 grams of carbs on a ride, I'd be eating 40 grams. So I was getting through everything all right. I just wasn't performing at my best. And um, yeah, I guess probably to answer your original question, then I sort of had a few good results, but then I'd find like I'd be getting dropped on the downhills or I'd be getting dropped on the flats. And I'm thinking this should not be happening. Like you can win a bike race up a hill, but you can't (laughs) win it on the flat. Like what's going on here? So, you know, I think that sort of triggered okay, maybe this isn't working. And yeah, then my period stopped again. And I thought, all right, you know, and um, at the time, like my my coach of many, many years, uh, Jose Areta, who, you know, I'm sure everybody's familiar with, he, he's, he was fantastic. You know, he recognised what was happening. He didn't make me feel like it was a, a bad thing, but he equally highlighted the importance of, okay, we need to look at your nutrition and make sure you're fueling properly. So 
I think in that sense, I was never conscious that I was gaining weight for lack of a better term, but I then be able, you know, then my period came back. I, you know, decided that like, well, not decided, but I think, you know, I was able to manage the training better. I got to the end of a result, uh, end of a race and I wasn't cooked. I was with the front bunch. I was winning, you know, races on the flats. I started to do really well at time trialing. So all those things that showed me that it was important to fuel, I think kind of, I just had to make the conscious decision what's more important, aesthetics or performance, you know. So, yeah, I think it's something I'm still still managing and I think most cyclists would probably be lying if they said they didn't think about it at some point in time. But, you know, I think you just have to change your way of thinking and think, all right, yeah, okay, I'm not going to look like those models or, you know, that super fit athlete, but I'm a pretty healthy, happy person and I'm winning bike races, you know, and... I've got my period, which means I'm not putting my future health at risk. So, yeah, it's it's been it's been quite a journey to to uh, I guess navigate the thoughts associated with weight gain and weight loss in sport. Mm. Mm. And it's interesting because I mean, as you said, you know, ultimately, you know, as a cyclist, you know, you want to do well and perform well, and um, you know, sometimes people confuse the appearance with the performance where, you know, ultimately, as you said, you know, the performance improved once your weight went up a little bit and, you know, things things started improving as opposed to when you're, you know, lighter because, you know, you're not handing out um, trophies or plates or whatever prizes based on your appearance. It's based on who crosses the line first. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think it's I've had this conversation with a few people and, you know, for me it's something I'm actually very passionate about, not just because of my own experience but, you know, I see the detrimental effect that external pressures such as wanting to look a certain way as an endurance athlete have on really young athletes. And I think that's something that it it scares me because I think, you know, as a society, we've still got a long way to go in terms of, you know, differentiating fit with very lean, you know, typically speaking, we say to someone who has dropped quite a bit of weight coming into say summer of racing, oh, look how fit they are. They look race fit and they fit doesn't necessarily mean 2% body fat, you know. So I think it's um, it's something that we probably just have to change the dialogue around how we describe athletes who are, who are doing really well because, unfortunately, that then means that that feeds that cycle of, oh, people are commenting on my weight. I must be doing something right. And, you know, what's happening behind the scenes probably isn't what we would call fit and healthy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And just a shout-out to... Your, your old coach, Jose, who was actually one of our guests on episode 9A of the podcast as well, talking about carbohydrate loading. I've so, been caught yeah. out there, haven't I? I was like, oh, I reckon he's already <laughs> probably been on this podcast. But he's, yep. uh, yes, definitely a shout out to Jose. Um, you know, he's obviously on the other side of the world now, but I have a long relationship with him. And uh, yeah, I follow him on Twitter and uh, all his publications. I think he's doing a great job and yeah, a lot of interesting uh, research in this area. Yeah, awesome. So I guess, yeah, what do you think you found um, helped trigger that that change for you? Was it because um, you already knew what you were doing? Was it having um, Jose there and you needed to see, you know, objective data? Um, like just trying to think for listeners that might be going through, you know, a similar experience Um yeah, what was the kind of, was there a significant thing that changed it or helped you think about how to go about change? Um, did you have a team around you? 
um, what were some of those um, factors for you that helped you kind of, um, yeah, increase things? I think, um, yeah, it was probably a combination of a few things. I think definitely Jose had a huge part to play in it in that, you know, he was, we were having conversations, not just, a, we were in placing the emphasis on nutrition just as much as training. And I think that that was something previously that I had underestimated. And, you know, he was, he was very good and he did hold me accountable of, you know, how much did you eat on that ride, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, even in races, like I just basically, you know, stress about the race or something and then not eat enough and then sure enough, you know, blow up in the last two laps. And I think for me, the sort of catalyst was, you know, the road race, uh, Nationals road race, and it's obviously a, it's a circuit race. It's traditionally sort of nine to 11 laps long, depending on which course we do. And I'd always find I'd be all right until about like lap seven or lap eight. And then I just fall off the back of the lead bunch, you know, and I'd spent, spent a lot of energy, but I just, in hindsight, wasn't eating enough as well. So, you know, I'm not saying that that's the reason I didn't make it to the end, but it definitely had a huge, um, huge importance and factor on that. And so, yeah, I think I just had decided, okay, well, if I want to win a bike race, I'm just going to need to eat more, you know, and equally then naturally your power goes up power to weight ratio was staying, you know, the same roughly, if not improving, but, you know, I think my raw power was also going up. So that was that sort of key thing. And yeah, I think to answer your earlier question about what do we sort of advice do I give to athletes that might be feeling a similar way? I think you have to think about why you do the sport that you do and what do you really want to get out of it. And if you're performance oriented and you're striving for, you know, a national championship or to make it overseas, etc., you need to think about the longevity of your career and how sustainable it is what you're doing um you know and yeah for me I think that was a big change I thought right I'm running a sort of a top five top ten you know like I said earlier when I was looking specifically at hill climbs sure can't wait I'm going to get to the top but if I want to win an overall tour that's got a time trial it's got you know big bunches hold my own in a bunch and be comfortable I, I just need to weigh more um you know and then I think yeah then I had a really good result in the time trial and you know arguably I was for lack of a better term heavier then but I was also a lot happier like I was sleeping better I had positive relationships with people outside of cycling around me and you know unfortunately historically speaking when I've had stressful times in personal relationships um that typically is when I when I drop weight and I probably pick up on those unhealthy habits um just you know due to stress and the people that surround you but uh yeah Surround yourself with good people, people that are looking out for you and stop comparing yourself to everybody else. That's probably my biggest piece of advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just going to say too there, Kate, you mentioned, um, you know, sort of the, the absolute power. So you sort of watts per se on the road for, you know, flat stage, obviously that's going to be an important number is the absolute watts that you can push. But up a hill, it's obviously watts per kilo. But it sounded like in that scenario, even though your weight increased, you know, people make that assumption that, you know, watts per kilo, therefore, you know, in that equation, you've got to reduce the kilos to improve the watts per kilo. But in your case, actually, even though the kilos went up, the watts went up by more. And so you were able to maintain the same power to weight ratio, despite being quote unquote heavier. Exactly, exactly right. So I think, you know, a quick fix, we always think, how do we, how can we improve this in a short amount of time, particularly when things aren't going well. And I think historically, that's, you know, cut a few kilos, train low, but then probably not refuel properly. Like, I think there's a lot of shortcuts that we tend to want to take as athletes. But yeah, I I had found that, you know, like my 
using terminology such as, you know, threshold power and whatnot. Like, you know, I might, my threshold used to be like 200 and I don't know, 30 watts or something. And now it's, you know, pushing that sort of 260, uh, 260, 270. And I'm still racing just as well. And I think it's, yeah, as an athlete, you have to realize that, yeah, if you, one, if you're heavier, but if you're also stronger, then you can push harder and push further. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. So it's just a matter of doing it the right way, training the right way, eating the right things, making sure, yeah, as we said, that you eat for the training. So therefore you can just push harder. So your ceiling is essentially raised because you're eating more. Yeah. Um, and I guess, um, you know, we talked with uh, Margot Rogers um, uh, last week uh, about sort of like the consequences of um, REDS in terms of health and, and performance. Um, you've already mentioned, you know, a couple there that you experienced in terms of, you know, menstrual um, dysfunction and um, performance. Um, are there any other kind of um, health uh, and or performance effects that that you noticed when you know when you perhaps weren't fueling um that well um I think fortunately like I don't think well t- touch wood because I hadn't had any serious accidents my my bone health wasn't really tested mm-hmm. um you know but mm-hmm. I'm sure that probably took a hit um like obviously my hormonal levels were down <clears throat> excuse me mm-hmm. um you know your estrogen and and everything else that was affected and uh my mood swings probably were the one other thing maybe like upon reflection that was sort of linked in that not necessarily I was uh I guess moody but it was more my capacity to deal with things when things would you know pile on or sort of what I always like to think of having a buffer I essentially just didn't have a buffer for when things didn't go the way I intended so yeah I think you know my mood was definitely affected and um yeah, I think probably we might be sort of steering a little bit off topic here, but, you know, I've also equally observed this in uh, male um, athletes that I'm, you know, very good friends with and have seen equally that, you know, both their like testosterone levels and their bone health have gone down simultaneously. So, you know, whilst that wasn't necessarily what directly affected me, I think I was also hyper aware of what was happening to me because I had seen the extreme nature of it actually impacting some of those people that you know I cared about the most and um, I think that yeah coming back to it almost ties into what we were saying earlier about you know who did you have around you it was also more so seeing what was happening around me I think equally had an impact on me. Do you think that um, there is a kind of like an ideal um, body weight for people racing in in cycling um do you think that you've kind of got this ideal body weight or has have your views on what is an ideal body weight kind of changed over time oh that's a very very big question Steph I think uh I think (laughs) historically I had in my head that I had to be 50 kilos if I was going to be race weight you know and at someone who's 165 centimeters tall I'm definitely not tall by any means but that was still very much on the lean side and then Mm. you know that over over time like my race weight now typically is about 55 kilos um you know which still isn't big by any means it's definitely not as as tiny as 50 kilos is um Mm. I, I, in short, no, I don't think that there is a, an ideal weight. I think the ideal weight that someone should be is when you're performing your best and you are the happiest and you're free of illness and injury. Um, I think that's 
a way that we should be thinking about it. Yes, there's probably a time where you have to be, you, you know, it would be ad- advantageous to be a certain skin fold or body fat percentage. But I think if you're maintaining a good good diet, a good consistent diet, um, and yeah, like I said, your immune system's pretty healthy, then I think that's a good way to look at it. Because particularly as a female athlete, you're going to fluctuate. You know, I fluctuate just within four weeks, you know, every month, I'm, you know, some, some weeks I'm two kilos heavier than I was three days mm-hmm. ago, you know, and I think that's just the nature of being a woman. So I think that's mm-hmm. something that we also have to think about as athletes. And yeah, because of the potentially triggering nature, I know I personally don't like weighing myself. I still don't like it. It still causes me angst. And so I sort of think about it in terms of I know how I feel and how I feel mm-hmm. is when I know if I'm, you know, healthy or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and I think also possibly like um, we've spoken about it before as well, like there might be, you know, you might find that there's a particular kind of body composition that you perform really well at, but it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't mean that you should be that body composition the whole year round. Um, you know, it's about kind of understanding that uh, I can't maintain that all year round um, and I don't need to. Um, and then sort of picking perhaps those kind of key races where you might cycle into that. And then if you are reducing energy, it's only for that sort of short period of time and it's been done very smartly um, so that then we're not impacting on your, um, you know, kind of really important um, bodily functions that that can get affected. Yeah. Um, Absolutely, Steph. And I think, you know, you're you're spot on there. And I think that's something that we all really need to remember. Like, if you think about body weight, and you know, everything you do, like, if we relate that to say, a training cycle in a year, you know, you've got your pre-season, you've got your off-season, you've got, you know, your base phase, and you sort of, you know, in competition phase, and you're definitely not at the same fitness throughout that entire time. So I think, you know, if we can sort of adopt that thought process to to body weight and as you said you know you you can't be at race weight for 12 months of the year equally you know you don't want to blow out for the six weeks that you have off every year and then make life hard for yourself but I think it's realizing that you you can't be at that top yeah as you said top performance for the entire year and you know I've worked very closely with Jose on this previously in terms of when we did say okay we're going to try and you know cut some weight here in this time it's not when you're doing hard sessions on the bike or when you're you know, trying to do intensity and cut weight because you can't do both. Mm. So it's more about, okay, we've got a nice consistent base block here perhaps where we can do some longer rides, some of them fasted or a little bit lower energy availability. We're refueling mm. properly, but equally when we come to those hard sessions, you're, you know, putting in that sort of, you know, 80, 100 grams of carbohydrates, you're well-fueled, you're recovering well, so you're not, detracting from that performance whilst you're trying to yeah cut weight at the same time because it doesn't work that way yeah yeah and um so mentioned you know before that um you know menstrual cycle was kind of um was disturbed for for a period of time um how long did it take for that um cycle to kind of return and things to yeah kind of get back on track do you think yeah, I think, um, as I sort of mentioned before, it was, you know, almost like two instances for me when it was like when I mentioned before when I wasn't riding and it was that sort of a long period of time where, you know, I think I'd mm. lost like 12 kilos over the space of 
it was like a year or something. So it wasn't like substantially short period of time, but I lost my period for probably two and a half years, um, you know, and then I think it obviously came back. And then the second time it happened, so when I, yeah, had dropped, it was like six or seven kilos in, you know, a couple of months leading into nationals um, on the bike this time, it was probably only a few months where I'd skipped it. So it wasn't really as noticeable. Um yeah, it was probably maybe three or four months. And then I think I got it back from memory. So it wasn't nearly as serious as the first time. And once it had come back, that was fine. You know, it, not necessarily just routinely, but also, you know, it it was quite light when it first came back. And then maybe a couple of months later, you know, it was back to a regular sort of what I expected it to be. So, and then since then, it's been fine. Like, well, I say fine, but it's been consistent. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I guess thinking back on this period of your cycling career, what do you think the things that you've sort of learnt from that experience and things that, you know, if you went back to, you know, six, seven, eight years ago and started that process again, what would you maybe do differently now knowing what you do? I think um, I think I would – that's a very, very tricky question in hindsight. Hindsight's <laughs> a wonderful thing, isn't it? It is, yes. I, I think that I would probably – place less emphasis on those micro details and um, be a bit more fluid in my adaptability to when things don't necessarily go right. I think like notwithstanding, you know, the, the weight fluctuations within the sport, I think I traditionally used to stress about a lot of things in terms of, you know, if on the day of race day, something didn't go right, you know, like I didn't get enough sleep or, you know, my routine was out of whack by, you know, X percent, that really threw me and just made me think, oh God, like my world's ended sort of thing. So I was very, uh, I guess, hyper sensitive to change in that respect. And I think coming back to what we're saying about before, just get the basics right. I've learned that, you know, a really good, a sort of good quote I take with me um, that a few of my sort of coaches and mentors have sort of instilled over the last few years is there's always another bike race or it's only a bike race. So as much as, you know, you you want to place pressure on yourself to perform at your best that, you know, at the end of the day, it is just a bike race and you have to be happy and healthy to enjoy it. So I think I'd probably just take a step back and make sure that I'm being a bit more consistent um, rather than fixating on one certain thing. And then if that didn't go right, I'd sort of, you know, the, my head would fall off my shoulders. So, yeah, I think just keep it really simple and speak up when you think you might need help, like, you know, really engage with your coach. Like, I obviously have always had a very good working relationship with my coaches, but, you know, like it's okay to not be okay. So don't think that you have to be a perfectionist. You can, you know, just just be upfront. If you're not filling up to a session, don't try and push through it um, because, you know, as, as a lot of amateur athletes, so, you know, obviously juggling professional, um, you know, work with training commitments, particularly cycling, it's, you know, you're running a 40 hour working week or 30 hours or whatever it may be. And you're probably doing 25, 30 hours a week on the bike that we're not superhuman, um, and that you have to compromise. You, you, you can't do it all, all the time. So I think that's probably the one thing that I would go back, I'd just say, relax, just relax, Kate, and ride your bike. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well said. Um, now, I think you sort of talked about a couple of specific examples about this, but I guess thinking more broadly, so obviously you're, you're a coach, so you work with with athletes. Uh, you've been a teammate. Uh, you're a member of the cycling community, more broadly speaking. Do you think that this issue of underfueling is 
common in the sport? And do you think it's different, say, in elite level riders versus recreational riders, or do you think it's the same across the board? Where do you think, just from your own observations, we're at with that? Yeah, I think I it's probably quite a um, people tend to tiptoe around this subject potentially. Um, but yeah, I'm you know bold enough to say that I, I definitely think it's an issue, and I think it's an issue at the top in recreational sport and as an amateur athlete. Um, and I think unfortunately, until it's addressed at the top, so that world tour level aspiring athletes are always probably going to have issues with it um you know I obviously can't speak for what it's like in other countries because I've only raced in Australia but you know I know that it's definitely in the peloton in Australia um I, I don't know what exactly why that's the case but I think traditionally if we look at the way that our races are they're the big sort of tours I guess you would say are usually decided on a hilltop um or their short punchy races that they're not actually again I'm not saying that they're not hard but they're not hard enough that you become undone if you don't feel well enough so you know you're talking a two to three hour stage as opposed to a five to six hour stage on a bike so mm. I think it's easier to get away with under fueling um and naturally the peloton it's not a big peloton here in australia you know like top nrs level you're probably only talking i don't know 30 40 riders maybe so you're constantly around the same athletes all the time everybody you know that sort of gap between being in that top couple of percent versus the everybody else a lot of the time that quick fix is weight loss, um, you know, and I think it's mm. it's something that we probably just need to call out a bit more because, you know, if you've got people like, again, I don't want to speak for everybody else's experiences, but from observation, you know, if you look at the likes of Annemiek van Vluten, like, you know, she's had a very successful career, but she has also changed in terms of her body shape quite substantially, you know, transitioning away from a really sort of strong time trialist. She then did exceptionally well in a lot of hill climbs and, you know, hilly, super hard um, tours. But from observation, you could tell that she'd lost quite a lot of weight and then she started doing really well, you know. So I think, unfortunately, that then breeds the sort of potential thought process for someone aspiring, hey, if she can do it, I can do it. So I think, unfortunately, because it's still there and it's still observable, that it's still going to be an issue here. And, you know, I think from an amateur perspective also it's something that it's more about being comfortable. Like if you think about cycling, yeah, we're all in extremely tight lycra, you know, exposing our our physiques to, to the world. You know, there's always going to be a photographer at the local crit race. There's, you know, just people out on beach road in lycra, that sort of thing. So I think, unfortunately whenever you're in an environment where you're exposing yourself a bit like you know going to the beach in summer you're always going to have that conscious thought process of how do I look um which I think it more is more just about accepting what that look is and changing that thought process so yeah I think we're definitely getting better I think in the Australian peloton I know there's a lot more conversation about this than potentially previously you know when I first started I don't think anyone was talking about it but you know, fast forward, we're now all sort of raising these issues and looking out for each other as well. I think there's a real sense of camaraderie within the peloton, which is great to see. And being able to sort of coming back to what we were saying about, you know, the Love Me, Love You Foundation and talking about mental health, like body body image and, and you know, uh, issues with that feed hand in hand with how we're feeling about ourselves and our mental health. So I think the more that we can talk about it as a peloton, the more we can change that.
Yeah, absolutely. Do you think it's any different in the men's versus the women's side of the peloton? No. No. <laughs> I think, um, again, I, I don't know, you know, on the ground in the in the men's peloton, but, you know, I've a very good close friend of mine, like I've had some very good talks to him at length about this and it's it's rife within the men's peloton you know the the leaner you are the fitter you are Mm. you know how many k's can you do on how little can you eat you know last Mm. two hours of your ride are you hungry do you really need that bar that that sort of thing and I Mm. think it's it is a bit of a it's a um yeah it's it's definitely there and I think it's something that again you see those quick fix solutions in the men's peloton and, you know, someone comes out of nowhere and they're super lean, they're doing really well. You know, Zwift, Zwift is a perfect example. You know, these people are winning these like, you know, obviously competitions, their power to weight's exceptional. They're very light athletes. So I think you'd be crazy to think that it's gender specific. I think it's definitely to do with the sport rather than the gender. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think that conversation, like you were saying, that the conversation's kind of improving in the women's peloton, do you get a sense whether that's happening also in the men's or not so much? I don't really know. I think, um, I pro- yeah, I probably don't have enough insider knowledge to comment on yeah. that. But I think I think that uh, the more that we talk about mental health and I think the fact that mental health within men is a lot more talked about now than it previously was with obviously the likes of Movember and, um, you know, various other mental health campaigns, I think they're maybe more prepared to talk about it. Um, But I don't necessarily know whether it's that camaraderie is there. But I think, yeah, yeah, it might take a little bit more to openly admit that it's happening um, and unfortunately I've seen the detrimental effect it's had on the men's peloton in people who've left the sport, yeah. not because of it, but it's probably had a bit to play in that in that aspect. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Uh, and so the final question, um, any other advice or, or things you wanted to add for listeners who, who may be concerned about low energy availability or relative energy deficiency in sport, whether it's themselves as a, an athlete, whether they're a runner, cyclist, triathlete, maybe they're a concerned parent, maybe they're a coach or someone who works supporting athletes. Anything else you think to add to that that we haven't sort of discussed? I think we've probably discussed all like, you know, the warning signs for a lack of a better term that you would call them, but I think it's my advice for athletes who might be feeling this way is that you're not alone um, and that, you know, it's it's okay to speak up about these sorts of things. I think as someone who works with athletes equally, I've seen it sometimes, be aware of the signs. So if you see someone around you, you know, looking out for each other, if, if, you, if they're your athlete, if, you know, they're your, your child, anyone, you know, you see that sort of they're dropping a bit of weight, their mood might be changing a little bit, they're not performing as well, just ask the question, are you okay? Because I think, you know, there's no harm in pointing out to them that you're noticing. And I think that was the one thing for me that really helped me change my thought process, like back at, you know, my uni days when my lecturer, you know, said to me, are you you okay? And I thought, well, maybe I'm not, you know, maybe there is something going on here. So I think, yeah, just create the conversation around it and talk about it. um, Because if you don't say anything, I think that's when it, when that person might feel that it's not getting noticed or they're not being recognised and sometimes that's more harm than calling something out that you might be worried about, you know, saying something about someone's weight because it seems to be something we still can't talk about for whatever reason. Um, so, yeah, just be ho- hyper aware of those signs and reach out early rather than before it's too late. Yeah, yeah, well said. 
Okay, well, I'm going to hand over to Steph now, and she is going to finish us up with a bit of a lighter side of the podcast with our bonus round. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Um, so this is where listeners can learn a bit more about you and what you may like to do apart from um, riding the bike. So if you could do anything besides what you're doing now, what would it be? Anything? Oh, it's. I think that's a quite a hard question to, to answer when you love what you do, isn't it? Like it's very easy if I'm not happy with what I'm doing. But I think probably like, yeah, I've, if I wasn't a bike rider, I definitely still think I'd be a teacher. I know I mentioned that earlier, but I think I've I've always wanted to work as a as a primary school teacher, um, work with kids. I think that's something that would bring me great joy. So equally, I love the outdoors. So I think probably somehow, I don't even know how I would do this, but working in a remote community as a primary school teacher, I think it'd be pretty fun. <laughs> good one, good one. Um, and one thing on your bucket list that you're yet to do? Um, well, there's probably more than one thing on my bucket list, isn't there? <laughs> I think uh, I think for me, I've always wanted to travel by bike around the world, um, which I know probably isn't a very exciting answer for everyone that's not a cyclist, but I think I've always enjoyed travel. You know, I've got family in Europe. I've done a bit of sightseeing in Europe by bike, but I think it's like a good good self-supported bike trip somewhere like Southeast Asia or, you know, um, across America or something would be pretty eye-opening. And, yeah, given that we've all been locked up, probably something that I want to tip off sooner rather than later. Mm. Yep, yep, get out while you can. Absolutely. Um, (laughs) What's a a sport you've always wanted to try but you you haven't yet had the chance? Well, haven't had the chance versus knowing I'm not going to be very good at it are probably two different things, aren't they? I uh, <laughs> I think I've always envied anybody that's good at ball sports because uh, my, my partner will vouch for this. I am terrible at hand-eye coordination, probably why I'm a good bike rider. But uh, I'd always really wanted to play top-level women's cricket. I think, you know, I played it at school and I loved it. I wasn't very good at it, but I loved it. So I think I'd probably want to give that a red hot crack if, you know, they, uh, the talent gods aligned and gave me some superpowers so that I could improve my hand-eye coordination. But uh, otherwise probably trail running. Trail running something I think that I would Good get one. a lot out of and, you know, as an endurance athlete it was probably quite a natural progression. A lot of cyclists decide that they, when they're done with bikes, they want to run. But, uh, yeah, trail running or, or an elite uh, cricketer. <laughs> well, Steph will be very happy because she's a trail runner. Yep. Ah, there you go. Hence the big yep, smile. Yep. Obviously, you can't see it being yep. a podcast, but the big smile on your face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, someone you've always wanted to meet, but you haven't yet had the chance. Oh, um, oh it's very, a very good question. It's almost like that that dinner party question, isn't it? But I think mm. I'm going to be quite boring here, and well, not boring, but uh, not very exciting, and say that I just really would like to meet my uh, my cousin's most recent child, baby boy Lou, who he lives in Germany, as mentioned, and I haven't seen oh. him yet, and it's been a few years since we last got over there. So I think for me, yeah. I really, I really value family, and not seeing a family mm. member has been quite, quite sad. So, yeah, get me back overseas, please. That would be nice. Mm. <laughs> you could ride your bike over there. I could. Then I could combine yep. my bucket list trip with, uh, with my, uh, my 
dinner party with yeah. Lou and then probably something yeah. else in there as well. Maybe I become a school teacher in Germany. There you go. Yeah. Combine all three. <laughs> <laughs> and um, one thing you have to take with you when you're, when you're traveling um, for races or um, just when you're traveling, what's, what's one essential item? Alan and I think we may know like what it is based on past <laughs> responses but does it have something to do with coffee because maybe perhaps but otherwise for me it's probably noise cancelling headphones um for travel specifically but for cycling tours my aeropress so yes probably an even tie there yeah is that that what your guess was yeah yeah it's like number one answer for everyone it's it's um it's been referred to as that gold liquid Gold, mm. liquid, liquid yep. gold, yeah. yes, yep. absolutely. Yep. Good gold. coffee yep. goes a long way, particularly when you're far away from home. <laughs> it does. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Awesome. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kate, for sharing your experience uh, and your wisdom gained over several years riding and I guess the, the ups and downs of that. I think that'll be really valuable for people and um, sort of a really nice follow-up, I think, to, to Margot last week, but also the topic mm. the week before around, the, you know, does leaner equal faster? Um mm which as you said, you know, sometimes it does, but only for a short time and sometimes it doesn't at all. Um, and then, yeah, the underfueling side of things obviously as well. So thanks so much for your time. Best of luck um, with getting back into the bike and racing. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see you out there next year in the NRS. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Alan and Steph. It's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers. Thanks. Thank you. All right, fantastic to hear from Kate. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Kate. I know some of that was quite personal, but um, yeah, great to hear your experience and hopefully others can can take something away from that and um, you know, hopefully maybe prevent someone else going through some of those things that, that she has. Um, Steph, do you want to give us a, a quick little summary of, of today's topic? Yeah, yep, yep. Um, so I guess like, we, we obviously, we've started off with having Margot um, talk to us about um, uh, relative energy deficiency in sport um, Who and we used to, I guess, refer to it as being the female athlete triad um, and now we also know that there's the, um, the male athlete triad um, but that now there's like, you know, broader implications with that. So there's the, the health implications and performance implications um, when we're not getting enough energy um, for for our um, for the sport that we're doing, um, and so Kate's um, uh, experience um, was was quite a unique one as well. Where um, you know she um, being at that um, elite level of of cycling, and um, I think um, also in a sport where um, the messaging can kind of be, oh well, you know, if you're if you're lighter, um, you know, you're potentially going to ride faster because you know power to weight ratio um, means, yeah, we often think that it means, oh well, if I lose some weight, then I'm going to be able to perform better, um, and um, and she potentially, I guess, got a bit caught up um, with that, unfortunately. Um, and it wasn't until perhaps it was kind of pointed out a bit more to her from her coach, um, Jose, who we've had um, on this um, podcast uh, before talking about carbohydrate loading. Um, but 
it wasn't, I think, until there was a bit more open dialogue about what perhaps was happening um, and also talking about like um, not just talking about uh, training, um, actually like talking about, oh, hey, nutrition is important too and nutrition actually can help um, your performance. And I think it wasn't until she started to perhaps think of it a bit more in that way um, that um, she was able to then really see, oh, um, hey, I'm kind of, um, yeah, not doing that side justice. Um, and um, and then obviously the consequences for her, unfortunately, was that she wasn't getting in enough energy for the, for the training load that she had. Um, and the consequences of that um, from the health point of view was unfortunately um, having um, menstrual dysfunction um, so, so losing the cycle, which happened in two occasions for her. Um, one when she was, I guess, more intentionally trying to lose weight and perhaps trying to do it a bit too quickly with running. Um, and then that um, took a bit longer for, for her menstrual cycle to return. Um, but then in cycling, um, she kind of lost uh, her body weight a lot qu quicker in a shorter period of time. Um, but then when she got her energy availability back on track, thankfully, her menstrual cycle came back quicker. Um, so, um, so there were consequences there for her from the menstrual side of, it, of things, but also for performance as well. Like she would find, oh, yeah, it's great. Like I can climb um, really well when I'm overtaking people or I'm right up the top. But then like when she was going downhills or, you know, on the flats, she just didn't have the stamina, she didn't have the power. And she, what she spoke about as well was she didn't kind of have this buffer from the mental side of things and the cognition that is obviously really, really key in um, mm. competing at an elite level. Um, and so I think um, there are a few things that sort of just started to kind of add up that then she was like, okay, well, like actually this isn't working for me, like being lighter, hey, I might get a positive out of being able to climb a bit faster, but actually for me and my racing and for my health, this isn't um, um, optimal um, for me. Um, and so it wasn't until she started looking at that stuff with Jose um, and looking at it with fueling better for her training that then um, over a period of time, um, was able to um, increase her energy intake, which then also actually led to um, an increase in her um, body mass over time. And that was um, over a period of time, you know, was about was about four or five kilos over a period of time, I think, Alan. Mm. Um, yep. And actually her power output um, improved um, uh, quite significantly and um and she actually then found her performance was was much better where she had that stamina um, and she felt a lot better from the psychology point of view as well and, and her cognition in racing um, was much better too. So, yeah, I think it's like what we've, what we've learned and what we'll, we'll learn in another upcoming episode is um, the consequences of not getting in enough energy can be varied for people. Um, it, some people, they might see it more from a health perspective. Other people might see it more from their performance. They're not recovering very well. They're not performing as well. They're not able to back up. And then other people will have a bit of both. And then um, that may happen over a shorter period of time for people or over a longer period of time. Um, 
And then I think the other important thing is um, what we're getting out of this episode, what we got out of with Margot, with Izzy, um, is trying to have a bit more of an open dialogue and to, to start talking about things and to start asking people, you know, are you okay? Um, how are you feeling? Um, and, um, and then hopefully, yeah, then we can tackle that a bit better. Did I miss anything there? No, no, I think that was a, a great summary. I mean, I think um, the thing that really stood out to me, I think, was that, that mental health aspect of it. Um, and that, that toll that, that had with Kate, as she said, it wasn't necessarily, you know, full-blown depression or anything like that. It was mm. more, as uh, as she described, like having less of a buffer for sort of mm. day-to-day stresses, whether that was to do with, with racing or just other aspects of your life. Um, and that, that, you know, that tolerance is just not there to the, the same extent, um, I think is a really important one. And, and it can be a, a way of being able to, I guess, uh, look out for your colleagues as well, whether they're other um, fellow athletes or family members or people that you coach or, or whatever it is, um, that, that those might be some signs to, to look for that might be related to the fueling side of things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think, so ne- looking ahead, I guess, to, to next week's episode, um, we're actually going to have a 24C here mm. uh, because we thought this was a, a really interesting and important story to tell um, because, as you said before, Steph, you know, this can manifest in different ways. Uh, and so this is, is quite a different one in terms of how it manifested. Sorry about that. Someone's trying to ring me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our guest next week is going to be Sophie Mackay, who is another cyclist and actually was teammates with Kate for a period of time as well. Um, but, yeah, I think her story is a really interesting one because, you know, she experienced relative energy deficiency in sport in quite a different way to Kate. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's a really interesting story, but it'll focus more, I guess, on the performance aspect, but also mm-hmm. the, the recovery from that as well. Mm, yep. And I think the other important thing that we've covered in these episodes with Gary, um, or starting from Gary um, Slater, um, is um, about, you know, even if there is a kind of, um, and what Kate pointed out, you know, we asked her, is there this ideal body weight, do you think? Um, it, it, perhaps it's it, it's kind of like, in a way, yeah, there's this kind of performance weight, you know, obviously in the different sports, but <clears throat> it's not necessarily kind of this set number and it's not definitely not a number for, for everyone and it's something you may work out over time and it's also about thinking about um, not only performance but health and also that whatever that number is, it's definitely not a number that we should be sitting at for the whole year round um, mm. because that's where we will have um, and get into those health and performance um, negative consequences. Mm. And I think in a sport like cycling where you have, I guess, different sort of specialities within the sport in terms of, you know, climbers versus sprinters versus time trialists that all have, you know, quite different body compositions that are sort of optimised for that sport around, you know, either being able to put out pure power um, mm on a flat stage or being able to climb so that power to weight ratio is the fact that you know as kate said um you know the 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 best race weight for you is going to be the the race weight or you know the weight that you perform and feel the happiest at um and that may be it's not going to be light enough to be the best climber and that might Mm. just be genetically that's that's not what you're going to be suited to um and we're actually going to be really interesting to, to talk to sophie next week about that because that was certainly an experience that she went through and that um yeah, trying to find your niche in sport, uh, whether it's in a particular sport or a particular role within a sport, um, you know, there, there's genetic limitations to some of those things as well. And so, you know, you may not be able to 
uh, achieve a certain physique that, that others can, and that's just the way your body works compared to theirs as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. All right, so just a, a quick reminder before we wrap up, if you have a particular question that you'd like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Um, very happy to hear any feedback that you might have about the podcast, what you're liking, what you're not liking, um, or any particular topics that you'd like us to cover. Um, but I think that's all for us today, Steph. So I think we'll bid everyone farewell and uh, see everyone next week when we have our chat with Sophie Mackay. Awesome. See you, everyone. Have a great week. See ya.